morning. Wonderful to see you all this morning. And uh, I haven't met Betty. Hi, I'm Eddie. Um, we're uh, we're going to continue on our study through the through the book of Romans. We'll um, just open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all that you do, all the work that you do within our lives, all the work that you're doing within this world. We praise you for the wonderful salvation, dear Father, that we've attained through the precious blood of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray, dear Lord, for those who have not given themselves over for what they know to be true. And we ask you, dear Lord, that even this morning, dear Father, you would move their hearts, that you would stir them to repentance, that you would stir them to receive a joy that is unspeakable. Ah, Lord, we ask you, dear Father, your spirit would be with us this morning, that it would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we might be able to indeed see the wonderful truth of your word. We thank you ahead of time, dear Lord, in Jesus' wonderful name, for the work that you're about to do, we pray. Amen. We are in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 5 of Romans. I've had a wonderful time preaching uh, through this book and it's been more than a little bit of a challenge because there's so much depth and you sort of got to wonder, you know, I only got 40 minutes to an hour maximum before everybody starts throwing stuff at me and hopefully that doesn't happen because I know how much you guys love the Lord and love his word. So we will read from um, verse 6 just to verse 11 this morning. Scripture says here, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The title of the message is Joy Fulfilled Through uh, through Salvation Secured. Um, I was saved about 18 years ago. And uh, for the first number of years, when I was saved at the time, I had a um, I had a business in food. I had a had a had a pizza shop in in Box Hill, and uh, you know, I worked there for five years. And I worked my at my return, and it was something like about a dollar and twenty cents per hour. So that was a really good income that I was earning out of that. And um, I got saved during that time, and. Uh, which was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me. And then from there, I ended up um, working in a, a new, 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 selling new cars for Chrysler Jeep over in Werribee, and then I went and pushed beef as a labourer in an abattoir in, um, in Brooklyn. And then from there, uh, what else did I do? I, I started selling computer networks uh, for a few months, 100% commission, and I knew nothing about computers. Didn't do too well there either. I had an old, uh, old little Ford Laser and that died and I left it on the side of the road. That was it. And not even the registration was worth getting. So we weren't doing too well at the time. And then we went to uh, 
then I started selling uh, small goods and did that for a, a year and a bit and then um, went and labored as a renderer and then eventually started my own business in the construction industry. All that time, I had no idea whether or not I was saved. I was saved. I was born again. I was gave my life to the Lord. But I didn't know that you could know. I didn't know how you could know. How could I know that I'm saved? So I'd asked, I'd asked uh, my pastor at the time. We started attending a church in Sunbury. And uh, he didn't know how you could know. He just said to me, yeah, you're saved. You're all right. No worries. I'm like, how do I know that I'm saved? I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm saved, but I'm not really, I don't really have that joy. I don't really, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but I don't really know. So I asked my brother-in-law, he'd already been a pastor for a number of years, and I asked him, how, how can you know that you're saved? He didn't know either. There's two pastors that had no idea on how you can know that you're saved. Two pastors that had no idea. And my brother-in-law knows now. He, he, he was going through a time where he wasn't sure if salvation was something that was temporary or that was permanent. And... Um, but then I started reading commentaries, listening to commentaries, and I had them on my on my hip. I had thousands of hours worth of commentaries. I ended up, you know, gaining over time. And I was working on a, a building site in Keilor. I remember exactly where I was. I was rendering a wall. You know, when you're doing brainless stuff and you listen to intelligent stuff, that's a really good way to go because your mind's other, otherwise it's empty. You're doing nothing, right? So I'm doing this work, and um, and it was a commentary through the Book of Romans. And uh, and here we have this passage in Romans 5, 6 and 11. For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says, much more then in verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall, shall be saved from wrath through him. And it continues on, and it says, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul, Paul is drawing a, a logical conclusion here. It's a simple, logical conclusion that he's making. And my joy, I went through the roof. I was, it was, I was dancing on the scaffold, you know? I couldn't believe it. It was like being born again, again. You know, all of a sudden, I was so excited. And I couldn't wait to tell people, you know, that this was real, that this is permanent, that this is secure, that this is absolutely true. And and I was absolutely just through the moon. I I was, there was no, no expression to my joy at that time. The world looks for happiness and joy in a really different way. You've noticed? I don't know if you can recognise this this quote. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit 
of happiness other than Pastor Wivel and Jan. Where does this quote comes from? come from? It's the it's Declaration of Independence of the United States. Written by Thomas Jefferson um, sometime in June in 1776. The pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. He, he, was, he was what's called a, um, an Epicurean. He, he, he believed that happiness is essentially the chief end of man. That, that our pursuit of happiness is our end. That's what we're going to be looking for. Being an Epicurean, he trusted in the philosophy of a man by the name of Epicurus, who was around about 300 BC. Epicurus's whole philosophy was that pleasure and the attainment of pleasure was man's ultimate pursuit. And it was good. It was his ultimate aim for good. Now, he didn't necessarily elevate physical pleasure. He elevated more mental pleasure and knowledge and, and virtue and things like that, which we would think is pretty noble. But he held that to be pretty high. But before him was Aristotle. Aristotle, in his book of ethics, which I'd only just started reading, I couldn't believe it, how all linked together. Um, Aristotle believed, truly, that the chief end of man is happiness. He couldn't understand how happiness could be a means to an end. Right? He couldn't understand how happiness could be a means to an end. But he did understand that there were many means toward that end. Understand what I'm trying to say? Happiness is something that we desire to attain. It's a goal. And he believed that that was the chief end of man. Happiness. Happiness. Chief end of man. Is that true? He's the wisest man on the planet at the time, and, and there's many people that hold him in incredibly high regard today. Incredible high regard. Was that true? Is happiness the chief end of man? Seems feasible, doesn't it? It can't be a, it can't be a means to an end, so it sounds like it's an end. Well, maybe it's an end. Maybe, maybe it's not quite an end. Well, let's go through the scriptures and see and see what this actually deals with here. As we're going through Romans, let's have a look at it. The first point of the message is the helpless can live. This is the first point. The helpless can live. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you notice that? For when we were without strength. Here Paul's making a fascinating observation. The statement, for when we... He's speaking both of himself and of those that he's addressing in this epistle. You, that's you and I, as Christians. He states that there was a time that we were without strength. Now, all, all, all the things that we do today, all the things that we do, require some form of strength or, or, or effort. You know, physical strength is required to get out of bed in the mornings. How'd you go this morning? Did you go to bed an extra hour earlier last night in order to get up? No. So I've got a job to keep you awake. Mental strength. Mental strength is required to endure stressful situations. Okay. Moral strength is required also to resist temptation. So we all need some form of strength. But here Paul's speaking of a time past when we were without strength. For when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, that's the we. Right? We're, we're the ungodly. We're the ungodly. 
Right, the thoughts carried through pretty well. You have a look at one of the other verses there, and it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a similar thought. So we were yet sinners, we were yet without strength, we were the ungodly. So we were the ungodly, we were yet sinners, we were without strength. Each refers to a past state. That was our past state. Paul's speaking about a time that we were without Christ, that we didn't have salvation. Paul's addressing this epistle to the redeemed. Okay, so he's speaking about us again as, as Christians. What Paul's saying here is that we had no ability whatsoever within ourselves to save ourselves. In fact, in other parts of the scripture, Paul refers to us as being dead, literally dead, dead in trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you hath he quickened, that means made alive quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. In Colossians 2.13, it says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Do the dead have any strength? Did a dead person have any strength? What strength did Lazarus have when he was in the grave and the Lord raised him from the dead? He didn't have any strength. When our Lord commanded one to follow him in Luke chapter 9, 59, the man said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Preach the kingdom of God. Why preach the kingdom of God? So the dead may live. That's why we preach the kingdom of God. So the dead may live. It's speaking about death, but a spiritual death. We're without strength. We don't have any means of being able to save ourselves. You know, we don't have any means to save ourselves. The world around us is trying to find meaning. They're trying to understand reality. They're trying to save themselves. Part of the Humanist Manifesto, he says, Paul Kurt says, there is no deity that are gonna, that's going to save us. We have to save ourselves. Okay, in the Humanist Manifesto. In the secular world, that's what we hold to. Um, Buddhism is exactly the same. Says exactly the same. We we speaks about we must save ourselves by choosing the right path. No one is going to save us. We need to do it ourselves, right? You're all alone in this world, people. It's just you. It's all about you. What Pastor Frank was mentioning this morning. It's all about you. How's that feel? So it's just you and you, and you can save yourself. Save yourself from what? Uh, we're not really clear. Not really clear. Preach the kingdom of God so the dead may live. It's the Spirit of God that moves with the love of Christ to quicken us to life. Think of a, uh, a defibrillator. You know what a defibrillator is, don't you? It's the thing that, you know, those little paddles. And you, clear, and you put it on the chest and bang, all of a sudden a massive charge of electricity has gone in there and it, and it starts the heart. You, you'll notice that um, when the heart has stopped beating, it's helpless without intervention. It's helpless without intervention. And that's where we were. We were helpless without intervention. Preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God, has the same effect on the soul. It intervenes on the heart of man to awaken into the knowledge that he is helpless and his case is hopeless apart from Christ. So Christians and a lot of other people think to, seem to think that um, Christ came... To make bad men good, aren't they? 
Most Christians think that. They think that Jesus came into the world and he's a standard of morals. That's what Thomas Jefferson believed. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But he came to, to make bad men good. Jesus did not come to make bad men good, but to give dead men life. That's why he came. That's why he came. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive, together with Christ, for by grace ye are saved. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul provides a logical conclusion. He says this, For the love of Christ constraineth us, that, that is, it, it moves us, it motivates us to preach the gospel. That's what he's referring to. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's what Scripture's teaching. Knowing you are helpless is the first step to having your joy fulfilled. Knowing you are without strength is the first step in being reconciled to the Lord. Knowing you are dead in trespass and sins is the first step toward, toward life. It's an interesting passage found in John chapter 9. Worth turning there, please. John chapter 9, verse 39. There's two verses that we're going to read there. And it might help illustrate what the scripture is teaching us here. It's the Gospel of John, New Testament, the last of the Gospels. It's not known. The first three Gospels are known as synoptic Gospels. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they are synonymous with one another. They're very, very similar. The Gospel of John is a very different Gospel. Although it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ, it speaks about him in very, very different terms. So it's not exactly the same. It speaks about similar events, but there are many events that aren't found in other, other Gospel passages. John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see might not see, and they which see might be made blind. Sorry. That they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? Jesus was making it plain. What he's trying to say is that if we believe that we're okay, we have no way of being okay. Okay? Another way of looking at it is if you think you know it all, you can't be taught anything at all. all right? You need to know that you don't know in order to know. Okay? Um, if we believe that we are righteous, we can't ever be brought to repentance. If you believe that you are righteous, you can never be brought to repentance. In Luke chapter 5.32, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 15, 7, he says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Let me summarise. It seems clear that you can't ever seek to be found unless you're aware you're lost. Okay? You can't seek to be found unless you are aware that you're lost. The helpless can live when they come to know that they are helpless. If you don't struggle with sin, then you can't ever have victory over it. Second point, the living 
are justified. The living are justified. Verse 6 again we'll read, just to verse 9. It says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Firstly, note that in due time Christ died for the ungodly. There was a time appointed of the Father that Christ would come to die for the ungodly. It was a time appointed. In Galatians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God had appointed a time for the Lord to come. Do you remember how many times in the New Testament as you're reading the Gospels, the Lord saying they wanted to make him king, not king, they wanted to take him and make him king? And what did he say? Not yet, for my time has not yet come. And then when his time had actually come, when his time had actually come, he stood on the Mount of Olives and looked at Jerusalem and wept, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had have known this thy day, then that repentance and salvation would have been for them. But now it's not. They were actually held accountable. All the Jews were actually held accountable to know the very coming of Christ. Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, been foreordained before the foundation of the world. It's been there. And they knew the date. The date is found in their Old Testament. All they needed to do was bring it out. He held them accountable. Some people did. Some people did realise it was the Lord. And they put the palm branches in the way and he presented himself as a king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. An incredible, incredible scene. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. For scarcely, hardly, rarely. Would anyone die for a righteous man? Would you die for someone that had more, um, that was more deserving of life than yourself? Be honest with yourself. Think about it. If they were more godly, more righteous than you, would you be willing to die for them? What about for your enemies? What about for those that hate you? Would you die for them? <coughs> Here we have Christ. He, he, he died. He died for the very people that put him on the cross. I mean, they, they, they killed the king of life. You know? It, it just blows my mind to think that we were enemies and he died for us. That's what the scripture is trying to bring out. How, how, how real is our salvation that when we were sinners, he died for us. When we were sinners, he died for us. When we were enemies of Christ, he died for us. The problem with atheists today isn't their lack of belief in God. They believe in God. They just hate him. They just hate him. You know. And Christopher Hitchens was told that um, before he died. Um, he says, yeah, I've got your philosophy. One of, the, uh, one of the people who were debating him, and they said to him, this is your philosophy. God does not exist, and I hate him. You know? That's pretty much the same. Richard Dawkins is the same. It's the only thing that he, that's on his lips. The only thing he talks about is God. You know? That's all he wants to talk about is God and his so-called non-existence. Well, if he doesn't exist, why bother? I don't understand. Why bother? Does it exist then? Great. Right. We live. We drink. We eat. Tomorrow we die. Let's party. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Scripture's drawing a logical link for you to follow. 
He says, but God commends his love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than now being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If it's true that by Christ's death we are made alive, then it is also true that that same death had poured out the blood required for our justification. The Bible says being now justified. Being now justified. What does it mean to be justified? There's a there's an understanding in common law known as double jeopardy. Has anybody ever heard of it? Double jeopardy. Double jeopardy is basically a foundational understanding of law that says that you can no longer be tried for the same crime if you have paid your debt to society. Okay, So if you've committed a crime and, for example, you've gone to prison and the, the, the time for that prison sentence was five years, once you have served those five years, you can no longer be charged with the same crime or a related crime within that instance. Okay, It's known as double jeopardy. You, you, you can't be tried twice. Makes sense? All right, so if you have, if you have um, rebelled against society after having paid the debt you owe to society, you are deemed just and you are set free and you are reconciled to the same society from which you sinned, okay, from which you, um, you, you, you took away from them. That's what's known as double jeopardy. The Ten Commandments is God's law. The Ten Commandments showcase to all of mankind the absolute standard for which relationship with God necessitates. All right? That's a picture of the righteousness of God. The Ten Commandments. We've gone through them before. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on who's kept them or who's kept any of them. Um... If you've kept one of them, you're doing very, very well. If you look at the scriptures and what it teaches, I'm, I'm pretty confident I've broken them all. So we're, we're, we're in trouble. They're given to reveal to mankind that he's broken those commandments. That's why the Ten Commandments are given us. That we would understand that we are without strength to reconcile ourselves. Okay, We were already dead in trespasses and sin. We stand now under both condemnation and the wrath of God's judgment weighs heavily upon us at this point. Verse 8, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you've accepted the death of Christ for your sin, it's a just penalty being paid. Okay, If you've accepted Christ's death for your sin, a just penalty has now been paid. His death was sufficient to pay for all your sin and his blood expedient in itself to save you through faith. So your faith in him needs to be sufficient for life. You know, you know what this means? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ, the value of him, he was the one that kept the Ten Commandments. We agree? He was without sin. He speaks about it in the New Testament. He says, who, who is here that can convinceth me of sin? Who's the one that's going to charge the Lord Jesus Christ of sin? No one. He was the one, the only one in any writing, in any book, in any history that has ever claimed to be perfect and without sin. You'd figure that if he kept the Ten Commandments, then all good, he gets in, covers himself. But 
was that the value of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was his death at death only expedient to cover himself? And you understand, he had to be of infinite worth. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ needed to be of infinite value to be able to redeem all of mankind. A lot of people get uncomfortable with the idea of blood and that being used to reconcile man. But the Bible makes it clear. In Hebrews 9.22 it says, And almost all things are by the Lord, are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood there is no remission. It's Jesus Christ became a ransom for us all. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Think of this. Think of this. You are dead in trespass and sin. You have no strength, no ability to stand, to, to stand before a holy God as judge. You have nothing to offer. You understand that the punishment of your crime is eternity and eternal damnation. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? How are you going to be able to see that through? And then here stands the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb as he'd been slain, who's poured out his blood as a just penalty for your sin. And he says, if you believe in me, if you believe in me, believe, only believe, you believe that I have done what I said that I would do, your sins are wiped clear. My blood has cleaned your slate. Your slate is fresh. Your slate is new. You know what's really interesting? Your slate can never be written on again of any sin. You're purged. Not, not just from eternity past, guys. It's not just all my past sins that are covered. It's my present because I still struggle. And it's my future sins too. I covered. That's how efficient his blood is. And that's how, how much it procures our salvation. That's why it speaks about what it says. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Summary point. Let those who now live in Christ are now justified. Never again will they need to face judgment. Their debt to God is paid in Christ and they have been justified by faith. Double jeopardy is the applicable common law which was first found here in Scripture. It's an understanding of what was already in the Bible, in the Word of God. And now we have it in common law. Can't be tried again for the same thing. Our sin was that which is wiped clear. Our sin was what created the debt. It's now been made clear. We can't be tried for sin anymore. Third point, the justified are reconciled. Verse 10, verse 10 only. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if it's true that through the death of Christ, we could be reconciled to God when we were enemies, how much more is it true that he being now alive glorified, exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is right now sitting at the right hand of the power on high and will one day come in the clouds of heaven. How much more true is it that we will be preserved by his life? How much more true? How can it not be true that if we were quickened to life after being dead in sin by his death, 
Now being alive, we would be perfectly saved by his life. So if we were dead and he died and made us alive, now that we're alive, how much will we live through his life? You got it? How much more? We should have a rapturous joy. I should be seeing white teeth everywhere. It was a long time ago. I went to Northern Territory. No, I divert the subject. But it was, there was, it was dark and, and there was a white panel van. And inside, it was really dark and we were in a place where we probably shouldn't have been trying to drive. And in the car, it was empty. So how's it driving while it's empty? And then my mate went in there and he looked in and he goes, oh, hi. And all of a sudden, everybody smiled. And all you see were these glowing white teeth. There was, oh, Aborigines were in there. You couldn't tell because it was all dark, you know, but their teeth just glowed white. That's all I want to see. After today's sermon, I want to see white teeth. Clean and clear and happy to be alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, please. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I'll have a look at verse 15. I want you to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I want you to understand how much the power of Christ has to be able to not only save you, but keep you. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7 gives us a wonderful picture. Verse 15, he says this, And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Okay, there'd probably be a whole bunch of question marks there going, Who on earth is Melchizedek? Best way to answer this is just, just while you're in chapter 7, just go up to the first verse. Go up to the first verse and it just gives you a brief explanation of who this Melchizedek is, an interesting historical character. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning for the, from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. This is the interpretation of his name. King of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That's the interpretation there. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. There's argument over who Melchizedek was. But I don't see anybody else in here other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I don't see anybody else without, without beginning of days or end of life. I don't see anybody else without mother or without father. I don't see anybody else without a beginning. And yet, he's known as Melchizedek. We don't understand it. And there's a lot of argument over who this is. But it's really difficult to reconcile that portion of text with anybody else. Let's continue on. Sorry, verse 16. Speaking about Melchizedek. And finished off saying, There ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. That's speaking of the law, the Ten Commandments. For the law made how much perfect? How much did the law make perfect? It made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did 
by the which we draw nigh unto God, inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So remember the high priests were there. They were to go in. They were to give atonement for the people. But you had to change the priests all the time because they died. Make sense? They were human. They died. But here the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 24. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore? He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I, how does this not make sense? How does this not make sense? If the priest once a year, in the Day of Atonement, were to come in and make amends for all the people of the land, and, and they could only do that once a year, but then they would die... And then another priest would have to take their place. They'd have, to, they'd have to do the sacrifices for their own sins first. Okay, They need to make an offering for their own sins, but then they would die. But they would, while they were alive, they were able to intercede for the people. How much more the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't die, who intercedes for you and I every single day, every moment of every day. It makes sense. One sacrifice, one atonement, one salvation, one hope, joy fulfilled. Joy fulfilled. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. The justified are reconciled. Final point. The reconciled have their joy fulfilled. And not only so, the last verse there in verse 11 in Romans chapter 5. If you're back there. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. If that wasn't enough, if, if, if life eternal isn't sufficient for our rejoicing, not only so, but we joy in God, we, we rejoice, we, we, we sing, we hope, we have a future in heaven for sure. Well, what a standing is mine. Is it any wonder that the Bible rejoices, saying, this is what the Bible says. Have a listen to this. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. If you're sitting here and you don't know whether you're saved, or if you know that you're not right with God, understand what he's offering here. Understand what he's offering. He's offering absolute joy perfectly fulfilled. And you can be perfectly content and perfectly happy. But it's not for you. By whom we have now received the atonement. By whom? By Jesus Christ. What have we received? We've now received the atonement. The word shows up 82 times in Scripture. The word atonement shows up 82 times in Scripture. Who knows how, how often it shows up in the New Testament? 
have a guess. Anyone? Shows up once. Here. That's the only place where it shows up. And what a perfect place for it to show up. What a perfect place for it to show up. In the Old Testament, to be atoned was to be reconciled. You could only be reconciled through blood. You could only be reconciled through the sacrifice that God has already put in place for ordaining and for picturing exactly what Christ would do when he came. And now Christ has come. The passage is speaking about redemption, reconciliation, atonement, bringing us together with God in union, never again to be, uh, to be separated. A perfect union. A perfect union. And what was it about? It was about the spilling of the perfect sacrifice, the one that was made a ransom for you and for me. His blood, perfect, pure. The Bible says man's sin wasn't going to be able to be washed clean by the blood of bulls and of goats. But this man, this man, this was the sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. It's right and fitting that the word atonement is here. That the word atonement is here. It pictures all of scripture. It's right and fitting that this is the only place where it shows up. Because this is what we're dealing with in this passage. Is there any wonder why Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This is why the same man states with all assurance, have a look at what he says here. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, he says, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So, the application here, how, how do we live with this? How, how do we live now? How do we live with our joy fulfilled? Do we, do we believe what they believed? Uh, let, let's give a scenario here. You, you believe Thomas Jefferson. Your pursuit of happiness is perfectly in line with Epicurus. Uh, but you've hedged your bet a little bit and you're going after the pleasure as well as the mental side of it, just in case. Just in case. You live according to Aristotle's philosophy and you accept that the chief end of man is happiness. The ladder of success is climbed by almost everyone today. The top of the ladder is their chief end, that which they believe will make them happy. Okay, We're not talking just about financial gain or prosperity. It's different for everybody. Um, uh, uh, it might be career goals. It might be seeing their children married. It might be having children. It might be... <laughs> Finding a spouse, finding a spouse is going to make them happy. My mum was my mum was a classic. Every time I'd see her, she'd be like, "Hey, you know, when you're married, then I'd be happy." You know? So I got married. She still wasn't happy. Hey, you know, when you have children, then I'd be happy. I would have children. She still wasn't happy. When you have a house, then I'd be happy. And I'd have a house. She still wasn't happy. You know, when your sister she married, then I'd be happy. You know, mate. Yeah, that, that ladder kept on getting a new rung on it, you know, every time it received those goals. She was looking for happiness. She was looking for a reason and a cause to be happy. So it's different for all of us. But it has a cost. Climbing that ladder, there's sacrifices that are made. There's often people that are sacrificed for you. Your children are sacrificed because you want to work and attain and pay off that house. Um, 
your, your family can be sacrificed uh, as you attend certain goals. Many relationships are sacrificed because men and women are choosing goals and are climbing that ladder thinking something else is going to make them happy. They're, they're, they're chewing the grass on the other side of the fence, ignoring their own, which is well watered. But what people believe fulfills their happiness remains their goal. We do exactly what Jefferson, Epicurus, Aristotle have taught. It's a natural philosophy. When they reach the top of the ladder, all people, I'm not saying some, I'm making a general absolute statement to you. When they reach the top of the ladder, all people find something amiss. They aren't truly fulfilled. Their happiness, they discover, is actually temporary and there seems to be more rungs on the ladder. And reality finally sinks in. I look down the ladder and being so focused, because I've been so focused on the climb up, they'd never noticed that their ladder was standing in quicksand. Their very foundation was sinking. This is the reason why men, you hear of midlife crisis? I had my midlife crisis when I was in my 20s. wasn't quite midlife. I didn't quite reach the top of the ladder. I actually got a certain way up and had, was forced to turn around. I've never had a midlife crisis since because I'm bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't have and nor will I ever go through a crisis in my life because, you see, my joy is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in him. Aristotle died as a man who rejected God or the gods and that they had any role on earth. He believed ultimate reality was in the material world. With all the worldly wisdom he attained, the very foundation, his first axiom, an axiom is the, is the point from which you believe to be absolutely true and without dispute, the principle, nature and effect of God he rejected. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. I'm sure Aristotle's been profoundly aware of the reality of God ever since. But he'll spend eternity wondering how he got it so wrong. Epicurus died in miserable pain at the age of 72 from kidney stones. If anybody's ever experienced kidney stones, you can understand that that would be miserable pain. He was writing a letter to... Idemius, and he says this. He says, I, he, he died, mind you, he died forcing himself to be happy. Right? He writes this. He says, I have written this letter to you on a happy day to me, which is also the last day of my life. For I have been attacked by a painful inability to urinate and also dysentery, so violent that nothing can be added to the violence of my sufferings. But the cheerfulness of my mind, which comes from the recollection of all my philosophical contemplation, counterbalances all these afflictions. I'm going to die happy if it kills me. <laughs> Can't change his mind now. There's been too many people that are influenced. Thomas Jefferson died and rejected the truth of the Bible. He did so purposefully to the point where he came up with and created his own Bible, known today as the Jefferson Bible. In a letter to John Adams, dated on the October 13th, 1813, he wrote this of his Bible. 
there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. That's the separation. He's taken out the things that he believed was really true and the rest of it was dung. Okay, These are the diamonds out of the dunghill. That's what he's speaking about with the Word of God. The result is an octavo or 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines. I guess, I guess he might have cut out Revelation 22.19, which said, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. He probably cut that one out too. So the philosophies of these men now dead, they worth believing? Is happiness, is happiness truly our chief end? Is happiness truly our chief end? Or is it? Or is it a byproduct? Or is it a byproduct? Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last portion of scripture we want to be looking at. Ecclesiastes. In the Old Testament, it's one of the Wisdom portions of literature, if you get to Psalms and Proverbs, turn right. If you get to Isaiah, turn left. You've gone too far. Ecclesiastes was written by the king, King Solomon. You figure King Solomon had, for the first 11 chapters, a real understanding of what it was like to search after happiness. It's interesting. It's a book that's trying to speak about the chief end of man, the real purpose for man. What makes me happy? What gives me life? What makes me fulfilled? He tried everything. Do you reckon the king, the richest man on the planet, the most powerful man on earth at that time, do you reckon he had the means of being able to get happy? I reckon he had the means, you know. I reckon he had the means. Man, if I was him, I'd be buying, I've got this grouse motorbike that I really want to get and... uh, you know, I'd be buying a good fast speedboat and stuff like that. I reckon I'd go to the snow almost every day, you know, if I was King Solomon, because that's what makes me happy. What does he say? He comes to a conclusion of the matter in chapter 12, verse 13. Chapter 12, have a look at verse 13. He says this, After trying everything that he has tried, after attempting to find meaning in life, he says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Our Lord told us of the greatest commandments in the Lord. In the law, he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. In these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. To know God, to trust his word, to be reconciled to him, to be brought through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and to have your redemption secured by him is the greatest joy any man can attain. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of the hope that you have in Christ. Our happiness and our joy is a byproduct of our salvation. 
God's words are sure and plain enough for the simple and the common man to understand. Happiness isn't the chief end of man. It can't be. It's neither an end nor is it a means. Happiness and joy is a byproduct of peace with God. So how do we live now? Guys, you've got the greatest news in history. Written in the greatest book of all history by the author being the creator of the entire universe. The Lord said his last words while he was here, he made a simple statement. He says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Live in hope and know that your joy is fulfilled through salvation secured. You've got nothing to lose, guys. You've got nothing to lose. Share the gospel to all people as the Lord commanded and watch your happiness multiply. Watch your happiness multiply. It's such a joy to share the word of truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful word of God. We thank you for the salvation that we have secured by you, by the death of your son. Lord, I pray for those that are here, for those that are my brethren, that they would go out and share the love of Christ, that they would understand that their salvation is secure, that they have nothing to lose. Please, dear Lord, work within their life. That if they sin, they can return to you, confess their sin, and you are faithful and good to forgive them. I pray, dear Lord, that they would grow in Christ, that they would read your word, that they would spend time with you in prayer, that they may grow, and that they may indeed have their happiness multiplied, that they would experience the wonderful love of Christ every single day within their lives. And Father, I pray for those who are yet to know you, that they would seek you out with all their heart. You make a promise. Lord, your promise is sure. You say, all that seek me diligently will find me. The word says, whosoever will come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. You make a promise, dear Father, for all people to obey the gospel and to be reconciled, to be saved and to be happy and joyful, no matter what the circumstances are within their lives. Father, I pray, dear Lord, for those that are here yet to know you. Please, dear Father, work within their heart. Let them feel the wonderful joy of Christ. Let them answer the call of your spirit. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.